Hello, and welcome to this special episode of the Vivolution podcast, brought to you in partnership with By Chloe, a leading plant-based, fast casual brand. Since starting in late 2016, Vivolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Throughout January, we have partnered with By Chloe to curate a series of exclusive topic talk events to celebrate Veganuary 2019. This bonus episode of the Vivolution podcast was recorded at the Business in Food Topic Talks with By Chloe. This event was held at By Chloe Tower Bridge on the 16th of January 2019. First up is Vivolution co-founder Damien Clarkson interviewing Paul Brown, founder of Bowl, about his experience of running a leading plant-based food brand. It's my pleasure to welcome to the stage Paul Brown, founder of Bowl. He's been a great supporter of us and yeah, give him a big round of applause. Hello everyone. Come on guys. Hi. I'm looking forward to this. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, because you've spoken at quite a few of our Fevolution events now over the last year, because obviously you've been working... Sorry, sorry for people that have heard me witter on before. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I'm going to make him talk about something different. Uh, and obviously, Bowl last year were the headline sponsor of Fevolution, so we've been working quite closely together with kind of trying to make plant-based eating, living mainstream. So I'm really excited tonight to dig in a bit more. So like the technical of what it's like to run a food business and hopefully share some inspiring tips for everyone in the audience. So some, some of the people here will be aware about your background, but for those who don't know, what were you doing before Bowl and what kind of inspired you to yeah, set it up? So immediately before Bowl, I was at Innocent Drinks. So I was running the, the food division for Innocent. Um, but I think probably the inspiration started before Innocent. So I was, a, I was a snowboard instructor in California. I was not a very good one. Um, I didn't last very long and had a pretty bad injury. Uh, broke every bone in my wrist, dislocated my elbow. Uh, and I spent a year when I was 21 living in California. And essentially everyone was living like most people are living now in London. Eating lots of vegetables, drinking lots of smoothies and trying to keep themselves uh, quite healthy. So I wrote my first business plan to start a healthy food business. It didn't get off the ground, uh, and that led me to the door of Innocent. So Innocent had just started, uh, and yeah, it was, it was 14 years uh, at Innocent being part of a business that was selling a couple of hundred thousand pounds worth of smoothies to hundreds of millions of becoming a, a global phenomenon, and I, I learned so much at that amazing company. So when Coca-Cola bought Innocent, I knew it was my time to leave, and so I took the best bits of the Innocent food business with the blessing of Coca-Cola and Innocent and started up Bowl. That was, uh, that was three and a half years ago. And the, the, the purpose at the time was just about making it easy for busy people to eat well. So I'm that person who loves to cook from scratch, tries to do it as much as possible. I'm always charging around the country, the world, going to meetings, and I hate having to compromise on taste, health, or quality. So Bowl was all about essentially trying to make it easier for me and people like me to eat well. And so when you got to that point where you've been up I've been in some 14 years, obviously had great success and heading up the food division. Was it hard to take that step and to walk away from what essentially had been such a big thing with great security, I guess, and the benefits that come with working with a company like Innocent? How did you kind of find the courage to sort of say, I'm going to leave all of that now? <laughs> yeah, at the time, there was a lot of really sensible people that told me I was making a mistake, but... 
I'm guessing a lot of people in the room are entrepreneurs or thinking about starting your own business. And, and all I can say is, if you really want to do it, 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 it can't be a mistake. I, I, knew I, really, I knew I wanted to start my own food business. I, I tried to start it when I was 21. It just happened uh, a lot later in my, in my life. And I'm, I'm not a big person on security and comfort. I like to be in, the, in that uncomfortable place and, 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 and jacking in a business and a, a salary and, and a pension and all that stuff that you should really be thinking about for um, going it alone. I just thought, you know what, if it all goes pear-shaped, at least it'll be a good learning experience. Um, but I just, I just really passionately wanted to do it. And I, uh, with the what became bowl, it all came out of the work you were doing at Instant, the Instant Veg Pots. So I used to I used to buy them quite a lot actually, so uh, I guess that might have been quite liberating to go and take the bits you didn't really like about the Instant Food Pots and kind of reinvent them with bowl. I, that's yeah, I think that's one of the things. Ninety nine percent of the stuff that I say about my time at Innocent is is positive, but the reality is how we used to do things at the beginning is very different to when I left. When I, at the beginning, as with all innovative entrepreneurial businesses, you, you're kind of, if you're 70% sure, you, you just do it. And it got to a point where I was trying to innovate and do a lot of stuff within the food division, but it was not of strategic significance to this big global brand. And so uh, it was kind of curbing my creativity. So leaving that into a, into a place where uh, we can do whatever we want was massively liberating, if not equally a bit scary. And that's kind of exactly what you did, because you went off and you set up Bowl, and you were very successful really from the get-go, and you, you, know, you had a full range of products that were listed in Tesco, um, a lot of the other major supermarkets. Then you decided to ditch meat and fish products overnight. You kept the vegetarian ones whilst you transitioned Bowl to a... A fully plant-based business. So, <laughs> how did you how did you feel doing that? Because that was a bold step for anyone to take. And what kind of motivated you to to do that? And what was the the immediate the immediate reaction when when you know you delisted those products? And so, apologies if people have heard the story before. Um, but yeah, it, Damien's right. At the, at the end of year two, we were we were doing over six million in retail sales well in revenues actually uh we just won new business of the year at the national business awards given a trophy by a prime minister was pretty random uh and <laughs> uh like we were being touted as a really smart business and doing really good things but 52 percent of our business had recipes that contained meat and fish and they were actually our fastest sellers so our our Jamaican jerk chicken, our Carolyn coconut chicken, um, and the balance of the business was, was vegan and vegetarian food. As I said, the business was set up to make it easy for busy people to eat well. That was as deep as it went. It was, it was not about uh, veganism, vegetarianism. It, didn't, it wasn't about that. It was just making it easy for busy people to eat well. And we definitely, from the beginning, were very clear about every ingredient that we put into a bowl, all the, all the vegetables and the beans and the pulses, everything, it's, it's completely natural, there's no preservatives, no additives, no colouring, so there was a level of um, clarity we had there, but I watched Cowspiracy, I read The Food Revolution, I read How Not to Die, uh, all of the books and, and, and stuff I'm sure you guys have all seen, and it just blew my mind, I was just, I felt so ignorant as somebody that had worked in in food and drink for so long to the impact that our food choices are having on our health and the environment. And 
I made a personal decision that I didn't want to be part of a business that was only going to exasperate that problem the more successful we became. And so I made the decision to, to drop those recipes. And it's only when I look back now, I realize how close we came to going out of business, which is not in any way, shape or form what I wanted, that we've got a small team of people that have sacrificed a lot to start the business. We've got a small group of investors that have invested in us. So it's definitely not cool to talk about going out of business. It's not fun at all. Um, but I made the decision. We went to the supermarkets and said to the supermarkets, we've, we've got 10 recipes in market. Half of them, as from next week, we're, we're no longer going to sell to you and, and we're, we're going to begin the journey to go 100% vegan. And what, did, what did they say to that? What? There's some swearing. <laughs> <laughs> They, they got it, but once one side made the decision and then got the team on board and got the investors on board, you can't go to a Tesco, a Sainsbury's, a Waitrose and say, we're going to do this. Their immediate reaction was, like, okay, great, what, what recipes have you got to replace them? <laughs> and for those people that have developed FMCG products, it takes six, nine, 12 months to develop a recipe, and we didn't have any new products. So we were saying... We're going to half the size of the business, half the size of the range, and we don't have new products to replace them. And if they had turned around and said, okay, well, if you do that, we will delist you, that would have, we would have gone out of business. Um, but they didn't. We managed to convince them to give us a shot and just have a much smaller range and give us, and give us nine months to develop um, new plant-based recipes. And, that, and that's what we've done. So the business kind of went like that, then it went like that, and we're back doing a bit of that. Hockey stick. Yeah, that hockey stick. There we go. That was a better way to say it. Hockey stick. Um, so talking about development of food products, I know a lot of people here in the audience may be developing uh, food products or maybe currently running a food business. And So how, how do you do it, Bowl? Uh, do you manufacture it yourself? Do you have a facility to use? And if you have a facility, like how do you go about finding a business that fits your values and does things to the standard that you require? Because there's a lot of people out there who maybe develop something at home for you. I've got a great product. And they go and get it made, and it comes back, and it tastes terrible. So yeah. how, how do you ensure that you find the right partners to work with on that front? I think that question about scale, scalability is, is one of the hardest, hardest things to do. Uh, I'd back myself in the kitchen to be able to make a, a decent smoothie, uh, a, a decent breakfast, a, a decent lunch, dinner, whatever. Um, I'm sure most of you guys could as well. And then you surround yourself with really creative people and you can find brilliant packaging and you can do the branding and the logo and everything. You just make something look amazing and, and sell it in small stalls and festivals and, and do all of that great stuff. To then make the jump to creating something that is going to deliver the kind of volume that the big supermarkets want is really, really bloody hard and I'm sure a lot of you in the audience have been through that in fact I know a few of you have what kind of volumes are they looking for then if, if you um, want to say be listed in in Sainsbury's okay well let's just I'll, I'll it's mental arithmetic time for you all you can do some mental arithmetic let's say keep, keep it basic yeah me. let's say let's say you want to go into 250 Sainsbury's shops and you've got four recipes and each one sells about 10 in rate of they call it rate of sale 10 a week so it's yeah, it's four times 10 times 250 or whatever the numbers are. And then 
times that by however many other supermarkets you go into. And, and when you're making a product like ours, where whatever we make today goes off seven days later, and we make it up in Boston, Lincolnshire, and have to get it all around the country and into a fridge, and then the British public need to go in there and buy it before it goes off, it, it, it's, not, it's not easy. There's the t- two ways to do it. You can either make it yourself, so if you're lucky enough to have um, the finance to build a factory uh, to make your own product, that's one way of doing it, and there's massive pluses to that because you're completely in control. You're completely in control of the procurement, the sourcing, uh, all of the quality, all of the technical. You can do whatever innovation you want. You, can, you, you have that control, but it means um, you need to also be good at the branding and the marketing and dealing with the retailers and all the other elements of, of, of running a, a scaled-up food business. So make it yourself and do everything, or do what lots of other businesses in this space do, and that's find a co-packer to make it for you. So what we specialise in, in Bol is the, is the kitchen front-end stuff, so uh, work with incredible chefs and nutritionists all the time to create um, fantastic uh, kitchen recipes, and then we go to the co-packers, uh, and we have to work with them to deliver that at scale. And uh, I'd, I'd love to say there's a silver bullet to it, but there isn't. There's the, there's the big uh, manufacturers out there that you'll know, like Greencore and Two Sisters and Kerry Foods and Samworth Brothers. <laughs> Manufacturing in the UK is tough, and they want big volume. And unfortunately... Us entrepreneurs can't give them big volume initially. So you've, you've got to get them to believe that over time you will give them that big volume. And I'm not going to lie, it's, it's, it's really, really hard. And we get talked about as an established brand nowadays. We are so far from being out the woods with this stuff. And there's lots of those big guys that I've tried to meet with over the years. And they just won't, they won't take a call. They won't take a meeting. We're just not significant to them so if you are getting knockbacks or not managing to get the traction with those co-packers i promise you we've all been there i've been there very recently i'll probably be there again in the future it's totally normal get used to it or make it yourself it's bloody hard sorry (laughs) (laughs) i won't be making a food product that's uh sort that out for me So you've recently launched your new range of dinner boxes. They taste great. You sent some to me and Judy, so thank you for that. Um, So where have you gone about drawing the inspiration for the flavours of this range? Because it's really punchy stuff. It's it's nice. It's really... I I really like it. I think it's great flavours in there. Where have you guys... Who have you worked with? Where have you got the inspiration for this range? So uh, for those that don't know a huge amount about Bowl Foods, which I'm guessing is quite a lot of you, uh, we do soups, we do salads, and we do veg pots. Most of those are eaten at lunchtime, so most people um, have them on the go at work or, or whatever. So uh, the range that uh, Damien has just talked about, we launched less than a couple of weeks ago. It's, uh, it's our dinner box range, and there's a number of things that's different with that to what we currently do. So um, dinner is obviously a huge, a huge market in the UK, in the supermarkets. Most people that go to the five billion pound prepared meal category that's how big it is and most people are there thinking dinner so we've had products that are mainly at lunchtime so there's lots of people looking for um delicious plant-based food there so we've we've created a range that's um it's heartier so we've got um a cauliflower tikka uh, masala we've got a katsu curry a linguine uh, and a shepherd lus pie uh, see what we did there and um 
Yeah, everything. Uh, we've developed it in packaging that's 95% plastic free. So over the last couple of years, as we've ditched uh, all animal products, we've had a lot of feedback from people, which I'm totally cool with saying, yeah, but you're still in plastic. Um, and a lot of our range is in plastic. It is 100% recyclable, and we encourage people to upcycle, and we do Don't Waste Create campaigns. And I love David, Sir David Attenborough as much as anybody else, and I love the way everyone's talking about this plastic problem, and it's amazing. This is us trying something a bit different. So it's in 95% uh, plastic-free. It's made of bagasse, which is um, a pulp, uh, and it can also be put in the oven as well. So... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. In terms of that, as a packaging solution, did, has that brought more cost to both per product? Has that made your product more expensive for you guys to make? Yeah, but we're charging more for it. So okay. economics need to stack up. So the average price of our lunchtime range is around the £3 mark and the dinner time range is around the £4 mark. And... And again, we've, uh, you asked about the inspiration. So obviously we've got a collie tikka masala. It's uh, um, the chicken tikka masala is like the British national dish. So we've just put twists on, on British favourites. But I think £4 for our product, which is exactly like you would make at home, is bloody good value. But when you're in a supermarket, something that costs £4 is, is a lot of money. So usually at that kind of price, you're talking about a Charlie Biggums that's got really premium ingredients in it um and we've only got a few days shelf life so we're, we are definitely trying to push the boundaries and it's and it's early days and hopefully as many people as possible will pick it up and and give it a try yeah i think they're fantastic and it's great to see you guys constantly innovating uh, have you what, what have you got planned for 2019 what's what's next for Vol? is there anything you can kind of divulge to us tonight so I think one of the things of being an entrepreneur is that one of the hardest things is actually keeping the main thing the main thing. And I... Which you talked about in your evolution talk recently. With... Yeah, and it's definitely not an area of strength for me. <laughs> in fact, I'm one of many not areas of strength. I, I want to do loads of things. I want us to do every time of day. I want us to have, um, I want us to have street food vans. I want us to have restaurants. I, I want to do so much beyond food. Um... But at this stage, we've got uh, four product markets, as we call them, that we've really not been um, selling for that long. So I, I think we need to focus. 2019, we need to focus on making the best possible versions of what we've got out there. Uh, and within those, so we've got our soup range, for example. We're about to bring out a chili non-carny soup, and it's got 20 grams of protein in it. So it'll have more protein in it than any other soup in the whole of the supermarkets. Um, most people that buy our soup are females. We're trying to get a few blokes into uh, eating soup as well and more plant-based. Uh, so little things like that, but definitely focus and just trying to get the story out there uh, as much as possible. Yeah, well, I think that's really sensible advice, actually, because I'm, I'm like you. I just want to do everything. You know, Every two seconds, I've got a new idea. And as entrepreneurs, it can be so easy to get pulled into those. And, and actually, do, do you think that's an area where entrepreneurs make a lot of mistakes maybe in trying to get distracted and start a new thing if they don't get success straight away with something and then sort of going off on another tangent Do you yeah i mean i can only speak for myself but when i speak when i speak to friends about how we run the business at ball i think they're amazed that uh, for such a 
creative place and such amazing people, it's not quite as happy-go-lucky as people on the outside working bigger businesses think. Actually, we, we, we have really clear processes that enable us to, as much as possible, try to make the right decisions because glamorising failure... Yeah, I, I don't know why this has like got a massive social media push at the moment. It's a, I'm totally cool with let's learn from our mistakes, but um, definitely as an entrepreneur, failing totally sucks. It costs a fortune, and we've not got any money anyway. Uh, people lose their jobs. It saps your energy. So uh, whatever can be done to make sure... If you're going to bring a product to market, you give it the absolute best possible chances of success, I would encourage people to do. And that's not suggesting you stymie your creativity, because I believe that getting first mover advantage and having that nimbleness and agility and pragmatism and all that great stuff that awesome entrepreneurs have, you've got to have. But definitely, like, people talk about Richard Branson as failing. Like, he was able to fail because he was so successful. Like, uh, too many failures on the... CV doesn't go down well. Yeah, he had 100 million in the bank before he started failing at things. <laughs> All right, well, look, that was great. And we're going to have you back on the panel later on. But um, for now, give a massive round of applause to Paul. Thank you. Oh, we're going to do a Q&A. We're going to do a Q&A. We've got time for Q&A. Okay, okay uh, who has um, a question for Paul? Yep. Don't know. Shout out the question, I'll repeat it. Okay, the, the question for the podcast and for the audience is, uh, you're on a mission to make plant-based eating mainstream, and what do you think are the, the biggest challenges with doing that? That's a great question, because uh, there are so many challenges, but also there is just a wave of goodwill and positivity to this movement that I've, I've never felt this before. I, I, every... Every month, it just feels like more and more people, whether they're going flexitarian or whether they're going vegetarian or going vegan, or perhaps they don't even want to call themselves anything. They're just being, they're just eating more conscientiously and they're just giving a shit more about the planet and the people and the animals and all of that stuff. There's just, it's amazing. Uh, so there will be so many challenges, operational challenges. Uh, I don't have a fear of competition. And I don't say that arrogantly. I want as many people as possible to come into this space because in 10 years' time, most people in the UK will be eating a mainly plant-based diet. And that's not me saying that. That's YouGov that did a huge poll. The, the, we sit, let's say, a Sainsbury's or a Waitrose or whatever. You go in there and look at the supermarket at the moment. The fixture has, like, plant-based options is here and then everything else is... So the challenge is not going to come from the macro trends. The challenge is just making sure that we keep innovating quicker and better than the big guys. I, 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 think, I think this plant-based movement is going to get driven by small entrepreneurial businesses. Um, and, yeah, the, the big companies just can't do what we can do. So I've kind of not answered your question, I don't think. I think there's just there's, there's the, the unknowns. The challenges will be on the, the unknowns. I think there'll probably be... The dairy industry is not going to lie down and take it easily. Neither is the meat and fish industry. There's probably going to be a load of bullshit stats that are brought out about how eating loads of meat, fish and dairy is great for the planet and good for your health and probably even good for the animals. Like, there'll be, it'll just be, but we all know it's rubbish and I just think there's, there's just, the, the, the movement is palpable. It's just going to get bigger and bigger. So 
we're only going to screw it up because we as a team screw it up, not because the wins aren't on our side. Yeah, if you fight, fight each other when actually we need to be supporting each other and there's room for so many more businesses to come into this space, I, I wholly agree. Um, any more questions at the back? Yep. I can, now I'll repeat it. I'm going to simplify the question here. <laughs> so how did you go from sort of the concept to sort of starting from scratch to then sort of testing the product and then scaling it up into, into a business? Kind of sort of succinctly, how did you go from idea to, to actually making it happen? So I think probably the best example I can give... Um, so I'm going to talk about my experience really quickly and then I'm going to talk about the innocent experience that I think is actually more relevant. So because I was looking after... Um, the innocent food business, when I was closing that food business down, I was in a really lucky position that I was given the blessing to at the same time speak with manufacturers and retailers who were in that similar space and say, I'm shutting this down, but I'm starting my new thing. And that, that's unique, and I'm, to I'm like the lucky one that had that opportunity. So me talking through that is not going to be helpful because that's not going to happen for anyone else. Um, but I just, the, the, the three innocent founders, for those that don't know how they started the business, and they're, they're kind of best mates and mentors and investors, but um, these are three Cambridge grads. These are guys who are in top jobs in the city. Uh, they wanted to start a smoothie business. Uh, they went out, they bought £500 worth of fruit. Uh, they made as many smoothies as they could. They went to a music festival sold them for a couple of quid, should we give up our normal jobs and start selling these? Yes, bin full, no bin, uh, not full. And then they, yeah, it's probably the best £500 they've ever spent. They then took those smoothies, started making them in the kitchen. We were selling them in sandwich bars, delicatessens. We built up lots of interest. People were then like, oh, these, these are good, these are going somewhere. Get Selfridges on board, get Harrods on board, then go to co-packers and say, this could be a really big thing. Find a co-packer that believes in the long-term vision, the purpose, the values and you're away, but it has to start in the kitchen, it has to start at festivals, it has to start with just trialling it um, just on the street, and then using all of that data to convince a co-packer to start making it for you or start making it yourself. That's it. Great. Um, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Yeah. Come on, guys. Three at once. Uh, we can do both of them, quick ones. Uh, These are top tips if you're looking to sort of raise investment and scale a business. Get investors that can give you more than just capital. So every single person that's put a pound into Bol does more than just invest money. Every single person who's invested in Bol is somebody that I've already had a relationship with. So um, I'm guessing most of you if you're looking to start a business, they're probably not going to need millions. It's probably going to be hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, I completely disagree with the don't, like, get friends involved in your business or family involved. For me, um, I, I went out to my network, uh, friends, family, business, and said, this is what I'm going to do. Um, who wants to put some money in? And thankfully, that's, that's how I did it. I didn't have to get institutional investment. Um, so I, I'd start as close to home as possible and work that. Uh, again, the innocent story, they couldn't get institutional investment. Everybody told them who was really smart that it would never work. 
Rich then just sent an email to everybody in his inbox saying, does anybody know anyone rich? He went to Cambridge, I'm sure it's okay. <laughs> and he found someone rich. So I just, with, with all of these things, just keep trying different ideas and don't give up. Like, it, it, it's just, it's relentless, but it's worth it. it I, I was told so many people, well, you know, you're not going to get the money, it's never going to work. If Innocent can't do it, how can an unknown brand do it? Like, but if you believe, you've just got to do it. And get, getting the money is horrible. Who, who likes asking for money? It's not nice, right? It's, you've got, and then someone's got leverage on you, but you've just got to get over that. Unless you're lucky and you're rich and you don't need money because you've got lots. But if you can't self-fund it, get comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations about money. Yeah. Good advice. Um, last question. So what's your daily routine or mantra to get yourself going in the morning? I'm full of these cheesy lines. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I kind of live every day like it's last. I don't, I don't like divide my work and personal. I, I honestly believe we've only got one life. I feel blessed every single day. I pinch myself every day. I feel like I've got imposter syndrome. I, I only ever do what I want to do. Uh, yeah, I've got the most amazing team around me. So I, I just... I don't know, follow, follow the dream just and do only do stuff that you're passionate about. Passion gives you energy. If you've not got energy, you can't be passionate. Like, think about what it is that you want and just go for it. I definitely could be doing stuff that I would have to work a lot less hours for and probably would be more arguably successful, but it's not, that's not what rocks my boat. You're not going to lie there on your deathbed and think about how much money you've made. You're going to think about all the positive stuff that you've done, all the fun stuff that you've done. And, and I think running your own business is brutal. And even if it's not running your own business, working in a business with people that you like and, a, and, and, and leaders of the business that share similar values to you. And like, it's not all about just running your business. It's just surrounding yourself with people that have got that same energy. That's, I, I can't stand people that sap my energy and I don't allow them around me. Sorry. <laughs> I told you on those They're just, yeah, that's me done. <laughs> That's great. All right, big round of applause. Thanks a lot. We'll see you in a bit. Next up is Vevolution co-founder Judy Nadel speaking to Nush Foods co-founder Bethany Eaton about her experience of going from a police officer working in Hackney to creating a multi-million pound turnover dairy-free yoghurt company. Hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Um, and for those of you who don't know about Bethany, Bethany's the co-founder of Nush, which is an amazing creamy alternative to um, dairy yogurts, and it's um, an almond yogurt, isn't it? It is. We yeah. do almond yogurt and almond cheese, um, and we've got a cashew range as well. Amazing. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Um, so you started Nush three years ago? Yes. Um, yes. And you went from a small startup to now a million pound business. Um, can you tell us your background and how you created Nush and why you created it? Okay. So um, um, I used to be a police officer in Hackney and um, I... I <laughs> Seems a world away from here. Um, so basically, um, I suffered with health issues, um, lack of sleep, um, stress, eating all the wrong foods, and I decided to um, go part time in the police and do a degree in nutritional medicine, as you do. And um, basically, um, from there, I, um, I I got my degree and I started. I left the police and I started practicing nutrition. 
And whilst I was seeing clients one-to-one, um, I sort of, I'm dairy-free and I saw a gap in the market because I was trying to recommend um, products to my, my patients um, as alternatives for dairy and there was nothing on the market apart from soya-based products. And, you know, I, the way I think is, you know, if, you, if you're going to have something, then you want it to taste good, but I also want it to be healthy and have the, you know, ingredients I recognise in it. So I said to my husband one day in the garden, I said, oh, you know, no one else has done it, so why don't we? And he sort of went along with all my other crazy ideas and said, go on then, let's do it. So we, that, was, that was the starting point. And we started trying to develop a recipe in the kitchen. And that, <coughs> excuse me, that wasn't easy. I think Nush in the making was a good couple of years um, to get it perfect. I'm a perfectionist and I wouldn't want to put anything on the market that, that I wasn't 100% happy with. So I used to come up with the ideas and then Paul, my husband, who we work together, he would, um, I'd leave him and he would be in the kitchen cooking away um, and developing the product. So that, that's, that's, yeah, that's where we come from. Amazing. And what do you think for you, it was um, how you started like as a small, you know, an idea in the garden and then experimenting in your kitchen to where you are now? Like what, what do you feel like was your kind of success and like did you have help and advisors who got you to where you are today? Um, okay, so I think I um, I went to a mumpreneurs group and um, I saw um, a lady talk from another food company and I just went up to her afterwards and I said, um, listen, I've got an idea, I'm thinking of doing this food product. Who, who should I talk to? Where should I sell it to? You know, I want to get in Whole Foods. And she gave me a few names. She gave me the Waitrose buyer's name and she gave me um, a distributor that supplies Whole Food, the managing director's name. And I just dialed up the phone one day and to to this distributor that supplied Whole Foods and amazingly the managing director picked up the phone and he never picks up the phone <laughs> and um, and and I spoke to him and I said hi um, I'm Bethany and I've got an idea for a product it's a dairy free product I can't tell you what it's made of though because it's top secret and no one else has ever done it before and it's going to be really exciting and, and I think he thought I was absolutely balmy <laughs> But, um, but I think, you know, our product has sort of grown to be one of their best sellers now. So it's really exciting. So um, and we and I would say, um, yeah, so, you know, asking I, I go off on a tangent. Sorry, stop me. <laughs> stop no, it's me. good. Yeah. <laughs> Ask me another one. <laughs> And so you touched upon, upon being a mum pronoun. Yeah. Um, how do you find the balance between being a mum and having mum duties and then also your professional world and running your business? Um, I think I like being busy because when I started um, my business, I was um, my son was six months old and I was still feeding him. So um, I was sort of running around with the baby and running off to manufacturers and um, sort of trying to develop products and coming up with all sorts of ideas. So it, it was extremely busy yeah. and I had very little sleep and I, when James was sleeping, I'd be on my laptop answering emails or making calls and he used to come around to meetings with me. 
Um, yeah, so <laughs> multitask. Yeah, I'm good at multitasking. <laughs> um, and with your with your um, yogurts and like your new range of cheeses, like I feel like we've seen a massive growth within the plant-based and vegan food market and how you know you've got M&S and Waitrose kind of doing their own versions now as well and um, where do you see the like wh- why do you think the main kind of where the growth has come from why do you think it's hit the mainstream um i think having been in the food industry a few years and having seen the um, the vegan sort of um, movement grow, um, I, you know, as a bystander, it's been very interesting. And I think people have become very much more aware of the planet and the environment around them and wanting to help um, for the future and cutting down on, on eating meat or cutting it out completely. And And I also think other things like you know, it's on trend. Um, there are a lot of celebrities um, that are, I've gone vegan. And I think a lot of people are influenced by that. Yeah. If you look at social media, um, influencers on social media, I think a lot of them, are, uh, you know, have, have turned, um, t- changed to a vegan plant-based diet. And again, people are very influenced by it. And yeah. I think we're very lucky today because the products on the market have made it a lot easier and you know anything for example the way i look at it our products anything you know we've developed a cheese and and our yogurt tastes very much like a, a dairy a dairy yogurt you know yeah. it's about a, a good quality alternative yeah. so yeah and do you see like a lot of people who are buying your products are they would you say they're more vegan plant-based or do you have a lot of non-vegan plant-based people buying your products I think um, 40, last time we, we did our stats, 40% of the people that bought our yoghurt were actually um, ate dairy as well. So our yoghurt's found in the dairy aisle and people pick up a pot of the collective and, and a pot of our vegan yoghurt as well. So it's, That's fantastic. Um, yeah, so which, which I think is good because it means that, um, you know, that they will eat our products, um, you know, it's, it's not a, um, an alternative that, that um, it tastes similar to dairy, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And you recently launched, or well, last year you launched um, a range of children, like yogurts aimed yeah. for children. And um, I feel like you don't really see many dairy alternatives for children. Was this a reason for you creating your 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 new yogurt? Um, I think the reason we created the kids range is I've got two children yeah. and um, they don't have dairy, and I wanted them to be able to have something and not feel left out. So we created like a frube for um, dairy free, and. Um, and I let James and Megan choose the flavours. So, um, and only once they taste tested it and ch- said, yeah, oh yeah, and, and they, they'd eat about 10 in one go, I knew, yeah, <laughs> that's good to go. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So. And what's the response been to the new Yes, yeah, it's, it's been brilliant. Um, it's on a cardo at the moment, and excitingly, we've just launched um, in Morrison's with that's it. Great. So, um, yeah, so there's nothing else like, like you know, a frube and... So it's, yeah, it's good. Amazing. It's exciting. And um, when you were developing this, you bought the franchise to Koyo. Um, can you just tell us a bit about like why you got the franchise and how this relationship works with Nish as well? Okay, so 
my other brand is Koyo. It's a coconut yogurt. And it's a completely different story because we started Koyo eight years ago. And um, Koyo, we'd never been in the food industry. And we, um, we, we, we had an idea, saw a gap in the market again. And, um, and we... But we didn't know what to do. So we Googled, and good old Google, we found um, Koyo popped up. And um, there was a phone number on the website. It was an Australian brand. And I thought, oh, I'll give them a call and, and say, oh, we've got nothing like this here. So I called them, and it was like... I forgot about the time difference. It was like 2 a.m. there. And, um, I, and I woke Sandra up. Sandra and Henry are in their 70s, and they'd just started... Um, they'd just developed Koyu and just launched it to market in the Sunshine Coast in Australia. And they call me the crazy lady from the UK because for 10 months after that, I constantly rang them and rang them and said, listen, we've got to do this here. We've got to do it in the UK. It'll go down like a bomb, you know? And, um, and then we met in Paris... And I'd never tasted Koyo, and I tasted it for the first time, and and it was amazing. So I, you know, we 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 came to an agreement, and um, I think with with them they wanted someone that they could trust with their baby, you know, and um, and I felt so passionate about it, and we brought it over here. And, it, it, I mean, it sounds easy. It wasn't. Um, we, you know, we bought the license and we found a manufacturer. And that was in the December we found a manufacturer. And by the February, it was in Whole Foods and Planet Organic. And then I rang up the Waitrose buyer from the Mumpreneur talk that I said about. And, and amazingly, he picked up the phone as well. So I think... Back then, maybe all the planets were aligned, and yeah. I was extremely lucky. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it, well, it's not been an easy um, sort of eight years, really. But um, yeah. Oh wow, that's great. And um, and there's a lot of people out here who've got a food business or who are thinking of starting a food business. And we've had some friends who are going through a similar situation where they've got a product and they're they're really excited to get that out there and they're reaching out to supermarkets. Supermarkets seem keen, but then they put a lot of pressure on, like with the numbers of like you know making it financially viable and you know squeezing them in certain areas. How what advice would you give to these people who are struggling with that situation and how they can navigate it? And also, you know, because to get it out there is obviously important yeah. in the supermarkets but they also need to make it financially viable for them to be able to survive yeah a couple of things i'd say there don't start in the supermarkets would be my advice um i with with koyo we've done two different business models with our two brands koyo what we did is we started in the wholesalers and then we we went into Whole Foods and Planet Organic and we built our business in the health food trade because back then we had no co competitors on the market. We were the only brand of coconut yogurt and we had two years on our own and we just took our time and we took it steady and we grew in the wholesalers. And then the supermarkets came to us. And it, it's amazing. We, we went into the supermarkets. It's, we'd proven ourselves. We were a known brand. And we did it that way. And then when we went in the supermarkets, it sold. Now, when it comes to Nush, I, um, we went in the supermarket straight away. We, we ran before we could walk. So no one knew who we were. We were an unknown brand, and we were playing with the big boys. We were on the shelf of Sainsbury's, and, you know, you... 
how do you make a product sale? How in a, on a shelf of Sainsbury's or Tesco when you've got to hit targets? They're not going to keep you there forever when they could have someone selling more. So really, it, it's been a massive learning curve. So my advice would be to start with the likes of Whole Foods, Planet Organic. One of my favourite customers, people to work with, Acado. Acado are, are amazing because they give everyone a chance. So our whole range is on Acado of both brands. So. Oh, that's great. And how did you deal with that situation then when you launched into the supermarkets and you were finding it difficult? We had to throw a ton of money at it, <laughs> basically. We had to um, finance it with uh, my, our other business and we had to market, basically. We had to quickly make this brand known. Mm. So we, um, social media, we um, is an amazing tool and we work with influencers mm. and um, every everyone, everywhere was talking about Nush because we got in with, um, we again, maybe we were lucky but we met a group of girls who loved our product and they're all the girls in in London all the influencers that I mean I'm an influencer you know I am I look on Instagram and the next minute I've bought another pair of leggings and (laughs) so um, you know it's I'm a nightmare but so I know it works so um, but yeah so I think we we work damn hard to grow a brand blooming quick you know and it was very stressful and I think for us um, you know I think we're we're a bit different from Ball in that we um, we it's just me and Paul who own our company, and um, I know you got your you know all your friends um, and involved, and I think we um, with Coio we had to remortgage our house and get a loan um, to to get Coio going, but I think we slowly reinvested money back in, and um, but with Nash we've had to just use all our life savings and get it to grow but it's paying off now and and yeah and it's excuse me it's growing and I think we've we've gone like that then we've gone like that and up again and and there's a lot of competition on the market these days and mm-hmm. it, and it's a harder environment than when we started Koyo you know so yeah, yeah yeah and do you feel like it is quite a collaborative sort of environment like do are other people who are doing similar products wanting to support you or you support them or is it very much seen as Compe- our competitors yeah um, well, I think it's um, well, <laughs> maybe not. No, I think um, it's eat or be eaten. You know, <laughs> really, in the market these days, in 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 our category, there is a lot of competition, and I think we're proud because we like to innovate and. Yeah. Um, and we um, we love to. I, I'm full of ideas, and we love to get be first to market and come out with all these exciting things. But unfortunately, uh, you know, people watch and see and 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 copy. You know, yeah. so it's yeah. it's difficult. I think it's like a real lesson, especially within the plant-based world, because we, me and Damien, are very lucky in the fact that with Vivolution, like we've met amazing entrepreneurs and business owners, and we're we're 
very happy to collaborate and to partner with people yeah. but it isn't like that in every area and so sometimes you may get burnt by people who do see you as yes. competition even though we will look at another events company like Vegan Nights who are here and we will want to collaborate because we just see it's the you know the best thing to do if you're both doing similar things what better way than to collaborate and support each other but unfortunately it isn't always like it's that it's not always it? like that I think yeah. it depends who your competitors are really yeah. um, I think our competitors um, uh, you know quite a, a big player so it's um it's yeah. difficult yeah. but i mean we have another competitor who um who we talk to quite a bit and 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 dish the dirt on 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 our other competitor so and that's great <laughs> yeah so that is um that that's quite useful that's great <laughs> and so you mentioned that you um obviously run nash with and koyo with your husband yeah how do you find that relationship and how how do you balance your work relationship and then your your marriage as well um, I think in the early days it was hard because we were working from our kitchen table and everything was, the work-life balance just wasn't there. Um, all we did was talk about work and to be honest, it's been eight years of being working together and I'm surprised, sometimes I'm surprised that we're not divorced but um, <laughs> but, but we've, we've gone through a lot and um, and last year was particularly hard and and it's nice to have someone who's close to you that when you go through crap you know you can you're there for each other so um, I think as long as you draw a line and Paul's over there doing his thing that he does and I'm doing mine and and you know that that's how we work it yeah that's great it's all about yeah. communication isn't yeah it? we've both got our yeah we've both got our our um, strengths yeah so we know what what we're good at and that's what we do yeah so. great yeah and um you're also a nutritionist um, yes. can you give some advice to the entrepreneurs and business owners who maybe don't always prioritize their health and well-being and their diet and they you know prioritize their workload over that can you give any advice and quick tips of how they can look after themselves well i, I think well, it's difficult really when you're busy and <coughs> And you're trying to start a business because your health does suffer, really. And, um, and you know, I remember constantly answering emails from the more minute I woke up to the minute I went to bed. So just make, you know, put the phone down and make sure you... Um, I, I now don't... I, I get, get up, get the kids ready for school, get them to school, and then I answer my emails. Mm. I think I'm lucky now because I've got an office, so we don't work around the kitchen table. We have our office, so we try and leave work at work although it doesn't often work out <laughs> like that and at home is chill time and time with the kids and and yeah other stuff you know yeah. so great and yeah. last question what what are your plans for Nush and Co for this year and beyond okay so I think Nush is very exciting and we have just launched into um, the country Iceland and I can't believe how many people eat almond yogurt in Iceland <laughs> <laughs> so um, that's very exciting so what we get we're sort of planning a launch throughout Europe um, in 2019 and um, another big launch launch in um, another country that's very going to be very exciting but I can't can't say too much right now and um, just to keep um, we've got a few new products coming as well and um, and a few new retailers so amazing yeah it's exciting oh that's great thank you so much for joining us tonight. yeah thanks for having me and thank and um, I think we've got some time for some questions a couple of questions does anyone have any questions for them? yeah oh thank you 
Yeah, so in um, Alice is my expert here. She, so basically what we do is um, in our cheese we have 60 almonds per pot and in our yogurts we have 40 almonds per pot. So um, we make all our almond milk in our own, because we manufacture ourselves as well, so we make all our almond milk fresh each day in our factory um, and we use Sicilian almonds so, and filtered water. Yeah. Um, sourcing the raw materials yeah so okay um, how long does it take to become profitable well I mean for us personally um, I think we've you know the way I, I we sort of we're a manufacturer and I guess the more we make the more we absorb our overheads so um, and we try and you know get get as much through the factory as we can but our products aren't cheap. It's £1.50 a pot of the product, but it's quality. So we're all about quality. And, um, and also, I think, you know, I didn't get into, into this for the money, but you've got to make money to sustain a, you know, a business. We employ 25 staff. We, we, we um, don't have any investors. And we... Um, yeah, so, yeah, we're profitable, but, you know, and um, raw material-wise, when we come up with a product, we um, basically what we do is um, I, I come up with the idea and then I just get on the internet and start hunting for people and that sell certain things and um, and I bring them up and that's how I source my almonds. Um, we, we Googled for a long time, to be honest, and we tried different almonds and almonds... You, you wouldn't believe how many different almonds are in the world and to get the right almond for our yogurt took a long time and we went out eventually to Sicily and met our almond supplier who was a small family business and we went to the plantation and, and we thought yes this is this is the right almond you know <laughs> so yeah so it, that, that's how I do it you know and um, but, but it's also talking to other people in the industry asking for contacts yeah okay um, cool, I think that's it um, for now, but thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And Bethany's going to be on the panel. We're going to have in a couple of minutes, so please stick around. And if you've got any other questions, you can ask in the next panel. Thank you. Thank you. Today, we conclude with a panel discussion hosted by Vivolution co founder Damien Clarkson, who is joined by Paul Brown of Bol, Bethany Eaton of Nush Foods, and Jenny Costa of Rubies in the Rubble, and Jade Rathmore of Fung K. All right, guys, thanks for sticking to the end. It's been, it's been really good so far, and I'm really excited to bring all these amazing people up here. And I've got a couple of new additions. Jenny Costa from Rubies and the Rubble, which do most amazing condiments. If you haven't had them already, they're on your chairs tonight, and you'll be able to take some home with you. Um, so all made from food waste, super tasty. And then we've got Jade Rathmore from Funke, who do amazing Chinese fusion food, and they've currently... You're doing like pop-ups and markets and supper clubs and there's lots of new stuff coming in the future. And we've got Bethany from Nish, you've seen already, and Paul from Bowl. Okay, guys. Um, so I'm going to ask some different questions to what we've explored in the, the previous conversations. And I want to talk about culture because all you guys are managing teams, you're building stuff. And kind of 
how do you build a culture where people feel empowered to contribute and share to your business to help it grow? Have you got tips for people who are building teams? It's, it's not easy to build a team um, and find the right people that fit in with your business. Um, I think now, I, after eight years, I've got a great team and without them, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, but it's about finding the right sort of people that have... You know, that I mean, because I, I don't think of um, my job as work, you know, I love it. And I feel that all my people around me must feel the same too. And, and I'm sitting in the office at like six o'clock or five o'clock and, and then they all go home. And I'm thinking, where are they all going? You know, because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it's finding the right people. It's not easy, but you, you have to find people that fit in with your how you feel and you know they're not all going to be um vegan or um eat healthy and you know things like that but it's 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 just finding those that feel right and can do a good job so yeah where, where do you go to find these people do you use it through personal recommendation is it through recruiters how do you, how have you gone about um i think linkedin people? is very good um and we use rec recruiters um good agencies in the food industry um for certain roles other roles have been word of mouth we've poached people from other food factories um yeah things like that but yeah. Well, I know the bowl team, Paul, and you've got a great team. There's such high energy and really buy into your mission of your brands. And how, how have you gone about recruiting those guys? And So similarly, uh, I think people get a bit confused with culture nowadays and, and think it's about having table tennis tables and um, grass on the floor. And uh, Remember, I have been to your office. Yeah, I know. We, have that. <laughs> we, we do that as well. Uh, but no, it's... Um, it's absolutely about the people and it's about having um, people who... It, people don't have to think the same. You don't want a load of metronomes. Uh, it's not about getting robots, but if, if you're running a purpose-led business, which I, obviously I know you guys are, and we're, we're doing the same, it needs to be people that share that common belief and believe in the vision and the purpose, and it gets you through those tough times. And it means um, there's a level of trust uh, that everyone's in it for, for a bigger reason beyond uh, commercial gain. And when you get that, that vibe going, it's, it's amazing. And it, and it just, it means natural stuff happens. So uh, every year um, we go on what's called a holiday. Kind of uh, see what we did there. Uh, so we go, we've been snowboarding together. We go, we go uh, surfing together. Um, we don't necessarily have to organise to do stuff out of work hours. We naturally just do it. Um, don't have a nine-to-five culture, but most people are in before nine o'clock and they stay well longer than five o'clock and they work at the weekend, not because I asked them to, because they, they really give a shit about what they're doing and they want to disrupt and they want to they make a difference. And a lot of people talk about making a difference, but I think when you're in a team and a company where you, you feel you are making that difference and all I do is set the vision and watch amazing people just develop and it's it's the best part of the job without question and, and jenny you're you're very much a purpose driven business yeah. uh you know if people don't know um all the rubies and the rubble products are made using food waste you know stuff that would have gone to landfill and so that's that's a really niche it's kind of been a niche thing hasn't it it's going mainstream now but like, 
I guess like that, that sort of feeds into, um, yeah, like the brand. How have you built that brand that is, is about not just making a great product, it's, it's about a mission to, you know, eliminate food waste or reduce food waste? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, it was really niche, um, especially when we first started. In 2011, when we were coming up with the idea... Yeah, I, I read that you watched a film or a documentary or something. That yeah, sort of, yeah, it was, it was actually a, in the Evening Standard. I read um, articles about bin divers. Yeah, like, there was a film called wow. Skip, Skipped or something. Yeah, and there was... Yeah. <laughs> I used to watch that stuff as well. <laughs> there were so many things, and I was just like, it, it was not that I wanted to be the bin diver, but it was just, it sort of raised awareness around how much good food was being discarded throughout the whole um, food supply chain. And that I just wanted to make a really fun brand that did made delicious tasting products, but actually, like, practically at the heart of it was. Um, raising awareness around the need to value all food in our supply uh, chain and and treat it like it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a resource that we really need to, to look after and to manage well. Um, food affects everyone and it should be something that our planet can afford and can actually feed, feed its people. Um, so that, that was the sort of at the heart of it, but then also making sure that our businesses and it was never just an add-on, that it was part of everything that we did. And um, I always remember, I think it was a Ben and Jerry's phrase or something, saying that, 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 that they, um, they did, uh, we, we sort of twisted it into ours of like, we don't make um, chutney to, uh, no, we don't use fruit and veg to make chutney or we don't use fruit and veg to make condiments. We make condiments to use fruit and veg. And it was sort of, it was the way that we started and the way that we wanted to make sure that we were, it was about the fruit and veg and let's, let's really make the most of it. Um, and, and we've been really fortunate that food waste has been something that's become quite mainstream and definitely on um, supermarket, the government, um, consumers' agenda, uh, more from the sustainability point of view, that, that has, people are, are much more aware that are actually what we throw in the bin, the carbon footprint of bread or um, pasta or something very basic at, it is huge by the time you've taken it from the field, turned it into something, packaged it, got it to the shop and then you've cooked it up and thrown it away. Um, and so from, what, from everything that we do it's always about let's make food in the most sustainable possible way but it's got to taste amazing and if we're going to make an impact whatever we do has got to be absolutely banging and right at the top. Did you find the kind of people who were coming to work for you or went to work for you, were they kind of environmentalists and kind of people who were very much, um, I guess, mission-driven kind of people who were approaching you to start with, especially? To start with, definitely. Um, I think, feel like this is really current for us because we've just gone from a team of three and a half people to ten. Um, and so keeping that... Uh, that drive and that excitement and everyone fired up and I think when, you was, when there was three of you and every day you'd be able to walk in and you knew everything that was going on in each other's lives and what they did in the weekend, what they did that, that night, what they had for breakfast and as you, as you grow, ten's still a really small team but it's just making sure that everyone ev I, I believe that everybody, you, you, people do really well when they're driven, when they've got purpose when they know where they're going and they're they're fired up for something and they believe in where in that um, and when they're really happy like in their personal life and in their own life so just making sure that people feel like they come into work and and, and, and they're cared for and um, 
and, and yeah, I think with hiring people, I hire people that I want to spend masses of time with because you're going to have to. I hire people that are not like me and to bring so much more to the business. Um, but I, I think for a, bit, a brand like ours, you've got to care about it because otherwise you'd, you'd go to somewhere else that might pay you better. You need to be authentic, right? <laughs> and, and Jade, with Funkay, it's... It's a new, it's a new brand, really, and it's a very, and it's in a very competitive yes. space. You know, the the food space, the street food space. How have you gone about kind of making sure that you guys are standing out and telling your your story because you're so passionate about food? What kind of have you been going about doing that? So we are very new um, at the moment. It is just myself and my business partner Angela. So it's just a team of two. Um, and right at the beginning, when we decided that we wanted to do Funkay, we sat down and what was really important for us was to actually figure out what our goals were, but also what our values were. And Angie and I, I mean, we did this huge brainstorming, right, what is the vision, where do we want to go, what do we want to create, and ultimately, what are we passionate about, what changes do we want to bring, um, And for the last 12 months, a lot of it was about a slow organic growth. It was about innovation. It was all about testing our products, testing our recipes, meeting people. I think with any brand, the direction that we've gone with, we've really taken an approach of showcasing who we are. We talk a lot about our upbringing, the food that we were brought up eating, which is pretty much the food that we're cooking, but veganized. Um, I come from a family of manufacturers, so my parents manufactured tofu, they still do, for over 30 odd years. Angie's parents have also been in the food business. So a lot of it was about bringing experiences that we had in our upbringing and developing something that we're super passionate about now. How have you found creating a personality-driven brand as opposed to um, a brand that you know is, is a name or you know and has a set of mission of values? But because it's very much driven by you guys at the moment. We love it. Um, a number of years ago, somebody in an organisation that I worked for um, told us about a book called The Love Mark, and it talks about companies who create a They've got an ethos, but they create a almost a love mark around the brand, and it's all about connecting with the consumers because they're so passionate about their mission. So for us, with what we've done, we've created, we wanted to connect with our consumers. We want direct feedback. We want them to know exactly who we are, what we're doing. Um, I mean, you'll go onto our stories on our feed. It's a lot about our food. On our stories, you'll see Angie's grandma doing Tai Chi. You'll see me going to all my favourite vegan places and markets. And, you know, it's, it's, we like to do that personal touch and to have that um, feedback from our consumers as well. Okay, um, moving on, I'd like to talk a bit about trends and data and how you're using that to inform your business decisions. So obviously last year, there's kind of tide turned against plastic and, you know, there's a big public outcry and, you know, overnight plastic became an issue that people cared passionately about. So I'd like to know how you guys are sort of using data and insights to develop new products. Where are you finding this? Are you Googling or are you commissioning people to do reports how do you find the business the data that you're using to rely on to shape your business decisions i think for me personally um i i think i would be my ideal consumer and i just use my 
I just use what I want, what I want to see on the market, what I think is going to be big next. And um, So your intuition and gut? My intuition with what I want to see on the market, you know? And, um, and it's always worked for me that way. And obviously we buy data as well and we do Kantar and, um, but it costs a lot of money. And I think if you've got a product and you believe in it and you're passionate about it and you think it will work, then my main thing is be unique. USPs, your unique selling point. What, why are you different, you know? And that's, that's what I always use to help me develop my products. So I don't like being in a crowd. That's yeah. good. Paul, does that fly with, with the investors when you go and say, oh, my gut tells me uh, plant-based is going to be big? Or do they want to see hard data to back up? So I definitely, if you, if you can afford to buy data and analyse it and turn it into great insights, then, then clearly that's, that's the thing to do. Um, I prefer to, to travel and get my inspiration there and... I'm really comfortable. I'm all. I completely agree. Everything that you bring to market within your own respective market needs to be unique. But get comfortable stealing the best of the best from around the world. Uh, There's a great book. Still like an artist. It's just very little. We're, very few of us will truly ever invent something. But you can definitely innovate. So. Uh, our salad jar came from a trip I uh, I was doing on the west coast of um, of California. Uh, similar with our soups, um, I would uh, now with Google, you don't even need to travel. You can just just Google everything and see what the best selling whatever your product is in a different part of the world, and and just play with it in the kitchen and then test it. And um, I mean, data sometimes is um, over. Uh, oh, people over rely on the data. I mean, whoever thought Donald Trump was going to get in power? Whoever thought what was going to happen on Brexit? There's a lot of smart people saying, oh, this is going to happen. It's like, if you're going to be entrepreneurial, think entrepreneurial, do things entrepreneurially. If you're 70% sure, go for it. And, and yeah, I agree. Like, your, your gut is, is not as maverick as it feels. Actually trusting your gut and believing what you believe. Um, makes a lot of sense for entrepreneurs. There's a great book about this thing, exactly, a Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, and it talks about using your intuition to make better decisions. And they look at the, how it plays out over a period of time, and normally trusting your gut actually leads to better results. So it's well worth reading if you haven't already. Um, okay, let's talk about plant-based food going mainstream. And, you know, we've seen M&S create a, what I think is a fantastic plant-based range. It seems like very good products. And what do you think the future holds for independent vegan businesses? Maybe I'll start with Jenny and Jade and work down. Um, I mean, in terms of... It's really exciting to see the the change in people's diets and the excitement of trying new things and innovation and I think as long as people are creating great tasting products that are plant based um, I, can't, you, I can't really see it going anywhere where else um, but it's, it's about us making sure that all the products are amazing and that they are we're, we're giving great alternatives um, I think small independent businesses are, uh, you couldn't be in a better place being based in London surrounded by foodies people are I mean the poor high street everyone's going from the high street to food markets and things and spending their time 
just experiencing and doing different things on the weekend and 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 food independent spots are, are really you know on the rise it's so exciting seeing that um, so i don't think we're in you could be in a better place um and and i think the rise in social media i think people were mentioning it earlier but that people are wanting to now take photos and talk about what they're eating so it's almost become a bit competitive to sort of say well this is what i'm sharing with you and and um, so there's this, a real sense of excitement to experiment, um, and uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a great and, space. And are you worried about um, supermarkets maybe recreating your products and bringing out their own version? Is that a sort of a concern? Concern? So would you guys really? I think yeah. I think with us um, in 2018, we saw a massive switch in the retailers, um, and they are cutting their supply bases and um, they're all about innovation um, and giving small brands a chance but if they don't perform they're out you know and they don't get long and um, the retailers are bringing out all their own labels now and I think as a manufacturer we have to, for ourselves as a business we have to use utilize that and use it to our advantage so we will look to make their products you know and then you know just but but really i i feel sorry for a lot a lot of brands and and we've certainly suffered from um retailers um last year with regards to own labels so i think there's always the chance of people copying i mean people are never going to not copy and supermarkets are never going to not copy is I think the challenge is about creating a brand that people have such loyalty and want to carry on buying into what you stand for. Um, so as a brand, I'm not, I think it's almost slows you down looking behind if who might catch and follow you. Um, but instead, just keeping focused on what you stand for, what you do, um, know exactly what that is so that you, you know what your decisions are, you know where you, where you can and can't go. Um, and if people want to follow then just it's, it's just about you know constantly getting your messaging and your brand out so keep the main thing the main thing yes. <laughs> if if there's no doubt don't ever think you're going to come into this space with something that's successful and not be copied it will get copied and it'll get copied really quickly uh, the retailers would rather uh, none of us were in business because they would rather obviously like the MS model that it's all own own label and obviously the retailers are very clear with that and they'll prioritize that but that's why if you bring something to market and it's half successful, be ready for it getting copied. But you've got to be thinking of the next thing and the next thing. Um, and you asked the question about where it could go. I mean, I don't know about everyone else in the audience, but it feels like food is the new rock and roll. I don't know anybody that doesn't <laughs> want to talk about food. It's everyone, whether, as you say, they're taking pictures of it or talking about it. Um, eating is the only conscientious thing we need to do to survive it's, it's a common denominator for us all and i, I think the plant-based movement is it, it delivers uh, responsibility it delivers health excitement innovation it's just a wicked place to be so uh, we are only at the beginning well what is this market is going to be like in 10 20 years time i think is going to blow all of our minds and it will be driven by independent creative people not massive businesses yeah because they can never be as creative as as nimble startups basically they never can move as fast and i guess you just got that mentality that what you're doing will be you know be always be three steps ahead of the the sort of big 
big corporate, basically. From a from a street food uh, supper club perspective, this is such an incredibly exciting time at the moment. We've only been doing this for 12 months, part-time, by the way, because Angie and I also had a full-time job, which most startups tend to. You know, it's kind of like, right, you've got your nine-to-five... Monday to Friday, let's squeeze in some extra hours. But actually what we found doing this is such a supportive industry at the moment. Like we've met so many incredible um, food pop-ups, supper clubs, um, brands that have been incredibly supportive and actually have helped us on this journey. So anybody wanting to do this, absolutely now's the time. It's incredibly exciting. I, I spoke to someone who's very prominent in the sort of vegan street foods scene and they said to me that they think people coming in now miss the boat that it's that ship has sailed and that it, it it's just too competitive and if you if you're trying to come in and launch a, a brand that you know is going to pop up more locations and do the festivals almost too late to that's really interesting because you know this person uh, yeah. as well. oh, okay so An- angela and i we do feel that i mean we are we are still relatively quite new um but there's just so much opportunity out there and i i, I do feel like with the rise in veganism, with the rise in people wanting to change the way that, in which they're eating, there is going to be a big demand. So I don't think it's too late. Yeah, well, I think I, I agree yeah. with that. I think it's a, maybe a London-centric maybe, view. Yeah. And you know, in London, we've got <laughs> we've got everything, haven't we? Really spoiled. And yeah. I think there's lots of other countries, and also in the UK, where there's plenty more stuff needing to happen. So I think maybe shifting that London location. Might also open up. There's opportunities in other places that we haven't explored. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely competitive. Um, a very renowned vegan market was closed. They they decided to close down recently because of it is becoming quite saturated. However, there's so many other avenues that you could explore. So be optimistic, be agile, keep your options open. Is what I'd say. Um. Let's talk about investment a little bit. We sort of heard from both Bethany and Paul about their investment journey in the previous conversations. But Jenny, do you want to talk about how you've kind of gone convincing people that food waste is something to kind of back? (laughs) How did did those early conversations go? Um, So we had a really hard uh, first two and a half years um, where it's pretty much on a shoestring. I was really fortunate that I started Rubies in the Rubble having been working at a hedge fund and I left just after my bonus. So I had a bit of a breathing um, space. Um, but I had, a, uh, like you were saying, a part-time job at the same time for the whole two and a half years. And um, no one would back the idea of it. I and mean, we spoke to so many different people um, in other foods, successful businesses and... Um, just saying you're just never going to make a a sustainable business how are you going to grow this is just there's not the volume there and things and then as as more and more research came out um it's definitely not not our concern uh for quite a while uh, in terms of running out of produce but it it was um yeah a really hard thing to convince somebody to uh invest in and i think it still is foods are um when you've got tech businesses and uh, I mean, it's pretty much tech. Anything tech is like everyone wants to invest because it grows so much quicker. Um, so I think I think food industry, people normally start a food business from passion and from their heart. And you don't go into food to make a quick buck, really. Um, so there's, there's definitely brands that just smash it and do really well. And um, uh, But there's a lot of restaurants and, and things that have done 
unbelievably and they're, they're lovely places to go but they, they're not going to get the turn around that an investor might look for um, so I think it is a really hard space um, we raised a really small we raised 120k when about three years ago <clears throat> um, and before that <clears throat> we pretty much did everything off of shoestring we had a couple of grants at the beginning as well and then um, in this last year We've just closed a £1.3 million investment round. So it's suddenly getting some cash to play with. Wow, how do you even spend all of that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it seems, I mean, it's salaries pretty much, I feel yeah. like. Salaries and and launching into more and more mainstream places where it, we, we've gone from, when we talk about trends, I started a chutney business, so I was definitely wasn't looking at trends. But um, now launching into, we've, well, we've launched our aquafaba mayos and um, chipotle mayos, and I've just started um, an alternative ketchup, which we have been taste testing against Heinz for the last year, um, because I want it to taste like what everyone expects the ketchup to taste like in the UK, um, but better for you in the planet. And it's the first time where we're going up against a really big beast. Um, so we need uh, the cash that we've got behind us is tiny compared yeah. to any other budget. And uh, what kind of investors did you get? Was it foodies? Was it institutional investors? Uh... Um, so at the beginning, we had a first tranche from um, Mustard Seed Impact, which are uh, they, they invest in sustainable businesses. Uh, and then just recently um, it's just a classic VC yeah. Um, yeah. great, that's fantastic, can't wait to see uh, what you do with that, it's really exciting and, uh, uh, Jade uh, how are you gonna looking to fund uh, Punke? At the moment um, everything that we've done has been funded ourselves um, and any profit that we've had has gone back into the business our goal was always to spend the first 18 months of the business creating a product, creating um, recipes, and we are looking into bringing a product out. So I know traditionally a lot of street food and uh, pop-ups tend to go down the restaurant route. I grew up in a restaurant. It is hard work. Um, also grew up in the manufacturing plant and that's also equally hard work but um, we've got a goal we've got a vision we are looking at our, um, close network first and then expanding I'm taking a leaf out of um, Paul's yeah, you're, you're uh, sitting next chatting. to the right people yeah. here <laughs> <laughs> um, okay we'll just do one more question for me and then we'll throw it out to the audience um, I'd just like to know quickly uh, what businesses do you admire and entrepreneurs do you personally all admire I'll start with you Paul can be people you know personally or just um, people you look at from afar? Okay, I'm, I'm going to shout out an organisation here rather than um, a person. So uh, our charity of choice that we work with is a charity called Action Against Hunger. And they are all about solving acute child malnutrition. And we've worked with them so many times and they just do incredible stuff all around the globe and they are a charity that's really linked into the food space and work with great chefs and nutritionists and um yeah so i just i doff my cap to to people that work in that space because you talk about people that are working with a purpose and 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 uh for benefit well beyond their own personal gain so um yeah for me action against hunger 
great organisation. I, I used to work in the third sector charity space, so you're right, the people who work in that area, they're really passionate. They're not doing it for money, they're doing it because they want to make a difference, and I think, yeah, it's a great, great organisation to support. And Bowl donate all their profits last year or the year before? Uh, yeah, every profit we've ever made so far, we've donated to them. Um, hopefully we'll make lots more profit in the future and we'll donate lots more to them. That's great. It won't always be to them. No, it's well, not a charity, obviously, but um, <laughs> yeah, they, they're, do, they're, doing some, they're doing some really cool stuff. Amazing. Bethany, do you have a, someone you look up to, an organisation or person? Um, I think, um, I mean, I look up to other people in the industry. Um, I think um, it can be quite lonely when you're running your own business and, um, and I think it's always good to um, network and meet other people and, and I, um, I admire other people in the industry in this sector who, um, who I work with and, um, and gain insight from and when I've had a bad day um, I can bounce things off them so you know you don't have to be lonely in this um, area you can just other small business owners are going through the same thing so I admire everyone who works hard doing that so I'm pretty much the same a couple of businesses that have really supported us from the from the get-go who do the same thing Club Mexicana um, the guys at Greedy Cow amazing um, Eat Chai they've been so supportive in just helping us um, develop and grow our business so yeah amazing I uh, I think I'm going to go for a, a big dog. Um, I am a huge fan of Paul Pullman, um, who has actually just stepped down, but was the CEO of Unilever. I think I think as a small brand, it's really not easy, but it's easier to have um, sort of a real purpose, and you're the one setting it and carving it out. Um, but he came into Unilever and and has set some amazing um, targets and goals, and um, I think. To be able to transform and put your put your like foot out and say like I'm, I believe big business should be about sustainability and there's profit in that, and that's where the world's going. I, I think is awesome. Um, so yeah, I go for Paul. Amazing, diverse range of uh, people. Okay, should we uh, do a few questions to finish up? Who would like to ask a question? Right, Athena, then Stevens. Okay, I'll just repeat the question for the podcast and everyone here. If you're working with corporates, um, are there some learnings that you wish you kind of knew before you went into relationships with those organisations? Do you know what? People ask... I've been dealing with supermarkets for my entire career, and um, so people always ask the question... Who's the hardest to deal with? Is it is it Asda? Is it Tesco? Is it? Um, and the reality is, it most of the time you can't generalise. It's the people sitting on the other side of the desk being employed by that particular organisation. And for the most part, um, I've I found them I found them good to deal with. Those big organisations that they've got a job to do, and the buyers have, have got a job to do to negotiate the best possible deal. Um, what I find the hardest deal with dealing with the big corporations and similar to what you alluded to a minute ago is they've got their 
big corporate strategies and you are just such a tiny, tiny part of that. And even though your little business and your little idea uh, is everything to you and you get a shot at, at, at some fridge space with them, as you say, if you don't hit, uh, hit those KPIs, then um, it doesn't take long for them to pull the ripcord. But that's, that's big business. And um, I believe in sustainable capitalism. I believe that uh, businesses can be a force for good. Often businesses are as influential as governments. And as, as you're talking about, I'm a huge fan of Paul Pommel at uh, Unilever as well. Um, business is here to stay it's never going to go away so let's focus on trying to um uh, do business in the right way and these massive businesses that everyone just kind of kind of throws rocks at the whole time i I don't think that's helpful like there's a lot of great big businesses out there and the people that are running these businesses aren't all about lining shareholders um kind of fat cat pockets so i'd like to think we're part of a generation that is shifting the dial and that's not that's largely because of the consumer demand. Like most young people, especially, they don't want to be giving their way their money away to um, irresponsible businesses. So, again, I just think the tide is turning, and there's a lot of crap going on in the world. But in terms of the food industry and business, there, I, I think I think things are getting better. Anyone else got anything to add to that? Uh, Stephen, I think you had a question. Just a quick question on social media. Do you look after? So the question was um, about social media and whether the people on the panel do it themselves or whether they use an agency. Um, I, for my brands personally, um, I've never done social media myself um, and we've used agencies and I find um, the agency just you know, it's not personal and it didn't work out. So I decided to bring it all in-house. So now I have a girl who lives and breathes the brands and um, and she does everything and she's fantastic. So I'd highly recommend, you know, either someone close to you or someone who's part of it, not just someone who's part of an agency who... It's just one of their accounts on their phone, along with 15 others, and they accidentally post the wrong, on the wrong account. So, yeah, yeah, I think bring it in-house. Or, or do it yourself if you're good at it. Jenny? Um, yeah, we do it in-house. Do you do it yourself or...? No, I'm, I'm the worst photographer in the world, and it's I am as all well, about <laughs> images, yeah. Yeah, when I started, I did it myself. Um, I was rubbish at it. Uh, so um, we've got somebody sitting in the back who does all of our social media, and she's absolutely amazing. I, I agree. If somebody... Social media is your voice uh, to the people, to the to hopefully people that are going to become your fans. So you, you just you can't outsource that to an agency. What, what you can do with an agency, though, and we've found is... If we're going to do a marketing campaign, a digital marketing campaign, let's say we're going to spend £5,000 on it, which is a lot of money for us, uh, agencies have the ability to be able to amplify it more effectively often than you can do in-house. So I'd say do all your organic stuff, the photos, the copy, the dealing with the the consumer love or complaints, whatever it is, in-house. But if you're going to spend a bit of money and do a bit of advertising, then absolutely agencies can, can definitely get much bigger cut through there. 
Jade, I found the answer yeah. to this. <laughs> we, we obviously do it all ourselves. What I will say is that we have been um, collaborating with friends and um, contacts on some of our images because to begin with, our images were bad. They were so poor. Um, and actually, through the process, we've learned a lot. But yeah, we're, we're starting collaborating with friends. Sounds good. Um, do we have time for one more question? Yeah, yeah one more. Um, two more. We'll do in the front and then left at the back. We, we touched upon this. So uh, how do we create a great company culture? Just briefly, uh, a couple of tips, bullet points. Sharing the same values for us. It's all about the people. All about the people and the attitude of those people. So don't get a load of people in with stinking attitudes. Get people in with wicked attitudes. And maybe if they don't have the grades from school or the experience, if they've got the right attitude, you can climb mountains. Vanessa, The question is, um, when you're starting out and you've got everything to do, admin, the million tasks, have you done everything yourself at right at the start or have you kind of used the um, outsourcing networks that exist like Upworthy and other ones to kind of help you with some more of the mundane stuff? Um, I tend to do most things myself um, to begin with and... Uh, things like our accounts, I felt like they took up so much of our time and invoicing and things. Um, Zero, I don't know, a lot of people will have heard of Zero, um, but Zero and Expensify and all those kind of things that just just make that very easy. Um, and then uh, I suppose, yeah, figuring out the things that you hate doing and the things that you're not very good at and knowing that that would be your next, your next hire or your next aim of trying to shift that off your plate. Hey, my, my view on that is try to do as much as you can uh, in-house as possible, but then all, you quickly need to work out where the magic is in your idea and the business and the brand or, or whatever that magic is, that's where you need to be focusing on. And then if you can use outsourcing or technology to make the other boring stuff that's not going to change the dial to make you more efficient, do that. Uh, it's not going to be helpful, me doing our bookkeeping, because... Not great at adding up, and I'm rubbish at the detail. And like, so it's just not going to be a good use of my time. Um, so just know where the magic is for you, and then put people in the right place to do that stuff. All right, I think that's it, guys. I'd just like to say thank you to everyone for coming tonight. I'd like to thank all the panel, Paul, Bethany, Jade, and Jenny. Um, and, yeah, just uh, bye, Chloe, for this amazing event. And, yeah, it's just great to have you all here. And we're doing this again next Wednesday, so... Hopefully we'll see some of you then. And um, thanks a lot. Big round of applause. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the Vivolution podcast brought to you in partnership with By Chloe, a leading plant-based fast casual brand. If you enjoyed this talk, please leave us a favorable review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.
Thank you.